It's two minutes past the hour of six o'clock. Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am Mark Riley. And uh, we don't normally do traffic and transit reports. <laughs> but if you live in New York and you're depending on the Broadway 7th Avenue line to get someplace, maybe you ought to uh, factor in a little extra time. Apparently, there was a problem between Wall and Clark Streets. The two and threes are running with big delays, and the number one trains are packed to the gills going uptown. I had to wait for three different trains before I could finally get on one. Now, as I say this, it's entirely possible that uh, by the time you all are getting ready to get on the Broadway 7th Avenue, maybe they'll have it all straightened out. But then again, maybe not. And, and again, we don't normally do this, but, uh, you know, there are people that live in Manhattan that uh, kind of depend on that line. So by uh, your time, maybe go go have a, you know, have a, a, a protein shake or a smoothie or something. And maybe by the time you get back, it'll be uh, when you by the time you get to the train station, things will be cool. Uh, we're going to talk about the State of the Union. We're going to talk about American Sniper. We're going to talk about teenage criminals who are not African-American. We're going to talk about Governor Court. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. But we're going to start out with this. Because uh, no matter what President Obama said in the State of the Union, this is something people ought to pay close attention to. Headline, the 1% will own most of the world's wealth by 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, that's next year. By 2016, this is according to Oxfam. Oxfam ain't no joke, all right? There's some serious people. And uh, they're giving their annual report on the world's wealth gap at the World Economic Forum in Davos, which kicks off today. So uh, the rise in the fortunes of the world's rich, who have seen their control of global wealth, this is according to the New York Times, rise from 44%. 2009, in 2009, to 48% in 2014. Five years, 4%. Not bad if you're rich. Now, here's the thing that is a tad irksome to people like me. There are people who are elected to political office in this country and in other countries around the world, but particularly irksome in this country, who will tell you that that 1% earned every dime that they have. Every dime. Now, I don't know. I don't have the facts, and neither do they. They don't know. But it's comforting to them because that 1% helps bankroll their campaigns so they can get reelected and reelected and reelected. And John Boehner can remain speaker from now on. So it's in their interest to tell the rest of us that this 1% makes half the world's money, which they will by next year, through hard work and determination and grit. And, of course, they don't say this, but they are inferring superior intellect as well. Although I can tell you, I know some rich people that ain't all that smart, but that's another discussion for another day. All right? If I were to estimate what percent of the 1% make their money through hard work, grit, determination, et cetera, et cetera, Jason, you know what the number I'd come up with is? 
One percent. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe, maybe that's just a little cruel and crass on my part. Maybe it's more than that. But it ain't all of them. No matter what they tell you, it is not all of them. I saw a story uh, in the paper the other day, yesterday, day before, and it took me right back to the 1980s. Man in Brooklyn says he was falsely arrested by police, and they say, he says that a cop planted a gun on him. Now, by the way, he's suing the city and the NYPD. Now, I don't know why, but I thought, you know, like planting guns on, on people, you know, to get them in trouble. I thought that was a relic of the 70s or the 80s. I thought it ended in the 80s. I don't think cops planted guns on people anymore. Now, the guy's name is Jeffrey Herring. And by the way, he was cleared just last week on that weapons rap because prosecutors failed to produce a confidential police informant despite a judge's order that the witness be brought to court. Well, gee, where was he? And how come they couldn't produce him? Was he lying like a, well, never mind. Was he lying like a rug? Maybe. I don't know. All I know is that this guy's lawsuit, Jeffrey Herring, says that the cops who busted him pocketed a $1,000 reward that would have gone to a confidential informant for leading them to the gun busts. This is from the lawsuit. Quote, the individual named defendants were abusing the Operation Gunstop program to enrich themselves at the expense of violating plaintiffs' constitutional rights. The filing targets retired Detective Gregory Jean-Baptiste, one, by the way, of four 67th Precinct cops who took part in his arrest. And they cite in Jean-Baptiste's record drunken driving, theft, and insubordination. He was suspended and demoted for 30 days. He actually was suspended for 30 days and demoted after he got into a drunk driving crash in 2009. Law enforcement sources told the New York Post, God help me, the New York Post, Jean-Baptiste was demoted out of the 67th Precinct Detective Squad down to uniform patrol for disciplinary issues in 2013. He was also sued in 2011 for allegedly stealing $200 from a criminal suspect and was suspended for another 30 days for insubordination for an altercation with a superior in 2007. Now, this is all according to the lawsuit. Maybe the guy's squeaky clean. He's retired after all. However, you got to ask yourself, is it a great leap of faith to think that a guy with this kind of sheet who, by the way, stayed with the NYPD long enough to retire from it, that he might, I don't know if he did, but that he might have planted a gun on somebody to collect a reward? I leave it to you. I don't know how many of you know much about Eric Adams, the borough president of Brooklyn. I know Eric Adams for a very long time. He was in the New York State Senate. Before that, he started out as a beat cop, rose to the rank of captain in the NYPD. Now he's the Brooklyn Borough President. And the other day at, the Martin Luther, at a Martin Luther King celebration that he organized, 
I believe at uh, in uh, BAM in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Academy of Music. He uh, offered a fierce defense of Mayor Bill de Blasio's policing policies. He also, and I was wondering when somebody would get around to this, he also defended the mayor in terms of his warning his son Dante about encounters with police. Why would Eric Adams do such a thing? Because Eric Adams had that same conversation with his son. There are many, many black people, including yours truly, who have had that conversation with their offspring, particularly their young sons. Because not to do so could be a problem, could be a very serious problem. Why PBA boss Patrick Lynch, and we'll talk about him later, why this was such a big deal to him, I do not know. You know, it's like, what, he's not supposed, uh, Patty Lynch is supposed to be able to get in to build de Blasio's family life? And, you know, I've talked to a few people who are not African-American who say they, they had no idea, none, that black parents had these conversations with their sons. And I'm thinking, wow, is it that deep a secret? We didn't tell no white people at all. <laughs> I don't know. I, it, it, it's just it must be something that has remained inside the black community. Because, I, I mean, I've talked to a number of white people and, and not, you know, not conservative, not throwbacks, not particular supporters of the police. But they appear dumbfounded that black parents have this conversation. Now, if we want to go back into history, ladies and gentlemen, history, we can talk about other conversations that black parents had with their children. Going back to slavery, about how you deal with white people. And if you want to draw a line from those conversations to the current ones, some people might. Some people might say, well, you know, I remember, you know, it's not that we remember, but Southern black folks know that they had conversations with their kids back in the day, probably up until the 1960s, about how to interact with white people in general and with the police in particular. And if you don't, if you doubt me, remember the name Emmett Till. Emmett Till. Apparently, his parents didn't have that deep a conversation with him, and it cost the boy his life in the South. Now, nobody's saying that the NYPD is equivalent to a bunch of white racists or supremacists. I'm not going there. But I also think the NYPD ought to be very understanding about the fact that there are black police officers in their number that have that same conversation with their own children. What to do if you encounter a police officer who ends up being hostile? It's not saying all cops are hostile. It's not true. But there are some. And you can interact with them on a negative level at your peril if you're a young black boy. I was riding on a train in Brooklyn actually waiting in the train station at J Street, looked up, 
The cops had some couple of kids, including a girl, in cuffs. I don't know what they did. They weren't harassing. They were beating them up, throwing them to the ground, whatever. But it may have been for turnstile jumping. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's proof positive that the city's back to normal as far as summonses and nuisance arrests are concerned. So President Barack Obama had, um, had gave his State of the Union address. I've always kind of sort of thought that the State of the Union is just a little, like, overblown. But he laid out some stuff last night. Can he pull any of it off? Here with us to discuss that and a whole lot more is a very special guest. He's the director of the University of Michigan debate team and the debate institute. He's in Atlanta, Georgia, for a debate tournament. His name is Aaron Call. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us. So you're getting ready for a debate tournament, huh? Uh, yes, just in Atlanta, uh, a debate tournament uh, recruiting uh, students uh, for the University of Michigan. So it's uh, appropriate with the uh, the big speech last night. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your impression of it. I mean, a lot of people, uh, his supporters, think he hit a home run, but also think he's dreaming in terms of some of the stuff he talked about. But let's start out with what do you think he can, in fact, get done out of the agenda he laid out? Um, probably not much, uh, given the fact that this is uh, his first State of the Union address in front of a Congress entirely c- controlled by Republicans, and the fact that uh, a lot of the same agenda items or similar items weren't able to pass with uh, democratically controlled Senate or even a, a completely uh, democratically controlled uh, Congress it means that I think the uh, the odds are long for the passage of a, a lot of his major proposals. Um, but there's uh, on the edges. There could be uh, some room for compromise and, and passage of items. I think on an issue of free trade, on the issue of tax reform, uh, there may be a possibility of, uh, of some compromise with Republicans. But I think for the most part, uh, the president was trying to cement his uh, legacy for his eight years uh, as, as the president, and also define the terms of the upcoming. Uh, 2016 uh, presidential election and make the the choice very stark between uh, the two parties. Can Republicans keep saying, as they have, some might argue, for the last six years or so, keep saying no to everything? I mean, uh, uh, the fair trade, the free trade thing uh, he talked about and was met with stone stone cold silence last night. Uh, Correct. The the applause uh, on the free trade part of the speech came from Republicans uh, as opposed to Democrats. And so, yeah, that's an interesting issue because it, it kind of divides the Democrats and the Republicans. And so you could have uh, a bipartisan agreement where just about half of both parties come to uh, support it and it, it uh, barely passes. But um, they, you know, the, the party of no, that mantra um, has seemed to work for Republicans in certainly the most uh, recent uh, election, the midterm election. But uh, the the voting demographics and those that uh, show up to the polls are, are different in, in presidential year elections. So it clearly that strategy worked um, previously, but mm-hmm. 
coming into a presidential election, the strategy of no has not been very successful, seeing that the Democrats have won the last two elections and could continue to win at a national level uh, unless the Republican Party uh, starts embracing some issues that uh, are popular and have traction amongst the majority of the American public. Now, he is apparently... Uh, and I wondered when this was going to happen, because I, I was kind of startled that it hadn't earlier. But he seems to be riding a, 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 a small wave of popularity. His approval ratings have gone up. Uh, gas prices are, are as low as I can remember over the last, what, six, seven years. Uh, the economy seems to be picking up, although there are people who would argue that that's somewhat illusory. Uh, can he use his popularity, assuming it holds, as some leverage to get some of this stuff done, even if it's something like free community college? Mm-hmm. I think everything, your premise is correct, um, but I don't think that the results will happen. I think, uh, as you alluded to, ABC Washington Post poll showed him up at 50%, its highest approval rating in uh, about a year and a half, uh, gas prices, oil prices very low, the economy job creation increasing, the GDP doing very well. Um, All those things are happening, and I think that because of that, that was a reason that rather than be conciliatory towards the Republicans and their election gains from November, it uh, enabled the president to be very bold uh, in his uh, fairly liberal agenda. And so I think that he felt more confident, uh, given uh, the strength of those numbers, um, to be a little bit more controversial, a little bit more far-reaching than it would have been otherwise. It was almost like the November election uh, didn't exist, uh, and he felt very confident able to do that. And I think the, the positive economic numbers could continue through the last two years of his presidency. You mentioned the wage gap, a disparity mm-hmm. uh, for those who are uh, who are uh, benefiting from this uh, economic rebound and recovery. Um, I think that was... The, the gist of his message that we don't want to leave the middle class behind in a an economic recovery that's happening in the last several years of his presidency. But despite all those things, I think all those things are true. But I don't think that it makes it any more likely that things like you mentioned, the community college proposal are going to pass because, again, the Congress is controlled by the Republicans. It would require billions of dollars in new spending. The president's proposed doing things like increasing taxes on the top earners, capital gains tax, et cetera, in order to pay for this economic agenda. And I just see it being very unlikely that uh, the Republican Congress is going to agree to those things because of their principles and values, uh, in a very uh, upcoming Republican primary, uh, et cetera. And so uh, the president may uh, ride this wave and be very popular and, and could help the, the next, the, who, the Democratic candidate in 2016, but I don't think that it's going to, uh, he's going to get that uh, popular enough for where Congress will follow him on some of those major gen items, especially the ones that require more federal spending. Aaron Call is our guest. He's director of the University of Michigan's debate team and debate institute. Uh, what do you think Republicans want? Okay, the president laid out what he wanted. What do they want? Uh, you know, they want him to, you know, kind of abandon, uh, his principles and, you know, come to their side. They, the thing, you know, they wanted the, the passage of the Keystone Pipeline. Mm-hmm. They wanted a decrease of environmental regulations, uh, a rollback of parts or all of the, uh, presidential's, uh, the presidential, uh, healthcare legislation. Um, 
and you know things like that that uh, the president is not likely and certainly not going to embrace in terms of a legacy and because he certainly thinks that that's the best for the country so they're trying to get the things passed that uh you know they ran on in the midterm elections uh and they're just two sides are at a loggerhead um because they're saying that we were sent to Washington to do those things and the president is saying is he won the last two elections uh based on the the what the, the public wants it to do, and those are just two opposite things, and that's mainly because they're different voting blocks. Those who vote in presidential elections and, and off-cycle midterm elections are a, uh, a different uh, block of citizens of the country, and so there's this mm-hmm. uh, mixed messages and uh, unclear for what the uh, the public can, uh, wants uh, to, to see emerge from the president and Congress. Can the Republicans know to all of this agenda? Can Do you think really can it hurt them next year not just in the presidential but in the congress and and you know state legislatures that sort of thing if the economy's doing well if the president's relatively popular and the republicans keep saying no won't it hurt them uh yes and it already has hurt them i mean you alluded to the um washington post abc poll that has the president in the 50 percent that same poll showed that Congress is about 18%, and Republicans in Congress are at 23%. So in terms of, of relative popularity, the president is much more popular. And you talked about state legislatures. Currently, uh, the Republicans control the majority of the governorships and state legislatures across the country. And you know, as we get closer to the 2016 elections, uh, the Democratic candidate can be strengthened, uh, state legislatures, governor races, and then... The, certainly the Senate's having uh, a very good chance of Democrats uh, returning control of the Senate in 2016 because there are, just like in 2014, the reverse is occurring in 2016 where there are many incumbent Republican senators in blue states uh, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that are mm-hmm. going to be vulnerable for re-election. So you could see just you know under a two-year period a reversal from uh, the politics both regionally and nationally headed into the next major election. The president talked a lot, as you very correctly pointed out, about the middle class. Uh, not so much about working poor people. Was that a mistake, you think? Uh, I, I do. Uh, things like poverty, food stamps, uh, issues you know, that are uh, distinct from uh, the middle class, I do think that was a missed opportunity. I think there were several missed opportunities from the speech. There are other issues that have been mentioned in that has received more attention in previous State of the Unions or inaugural addresses, things like gun control, um, the amount of time spent on immigration reform and health care. Those were uh, issues that didn't receive as much attention in this speech. And now it's a 70-minute speech, and you can't cover everything. And the the president obviously had his talking points, the thing he wanted, wanted to mention, but in terms of trying to appeal to the base of the party, the electorates that had been responsible for winning of the two elections. I think he, he clearly did, um, you know, overlook some issues that um, uh, could be concerned. But I think overall, it seems like the um, reaction to the speech was, was very positive, and there were some instant uh, oh, yeah. polling the results that um, you know, was very favorable to the president. Uh, clearly, there's uh, some constituencies that uh, are not going to be happy from omissions uh, from a very important speech last night. Now, he did, uh, someone described it to me as, uh, I guess, deal a glancing blow on the issue of police community relations. Obviously, Ferguson and what happened here in Staten Island, 
and, and I think he mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, something about, you know, something needing to be done about all of this. Was that sufficient, you think? Yeah, it was. There was certainly a mention uh, to that. Um, I think it was very brief. It was not very uh, specific. And so, you know, I don't think that it was uh, certainly a highlight or uh, a major portion of the speech. And and because it's a very controversial issue that that people are divided on. Um, And so, you know, I think that he didn't want to. The kind of middle class, I think, was the target. And I think his main... Um, focus wanted to be on. There's going to be that kind of recovery. The economic news is getting better. It may even get even better in the next two years, but he wants to make sure in terms of a legacy issue that he doesn't want to be uh, held responsible for the president that left the middle class behind in this uh, economic recovery. And so that was the, the major portion of the speech. And while there were some you know, allusions to the issues that you mentioned, um, for only a very few seconds, and uh, certainly not um, not the the points that he wanted to to highlight on and spend most time. He wanted to appeal to as many constituencies as, as possible and be as, as uplifting and 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 try to have a well received speech as possible. And so, you know, any issues that are very controversial, um, it's you know likely to uh, to stay away from in order to achieve that uh, result. Sure. Any uh, anything he said or didn't say, in your estimation, that would impact whether or not or how swiftly Loretta Lynch ends up getting confirmed as attorney general? Uh, no, nothing, nothing specifically. I, I saw in the audience that um, you know they panned to the current attorney general several times, um, but I think everything that I've read is that um, you know she has a, an excellent chance uh, of being confirmed and. Um, you know, even though the you know, the Congress is completely controlled by uh, by Republicans, um, the preliminary meetings have seemed to be successful. And um, you know, first uh, because of the, the the history surrounding it, I think that you know you mentioned Republicans can't say no to everything. I think this is an issue where uh, while they may say no to a majority uh, of the president's agenda uh, on this particular issue. In terms of the, the confirmation of the next attorney general, I think this is somewhere where uh, they're going to say yes and uh, will be confirmed. If, if for no other reason, is uh, Secretary Holder said uh, that he will remain in the position uh, until successor is confirmed, and so um, you know they they might uh, want to get him get him either out. Way, yeah, yeah. Either way, they're not going to be uh, happy and may you know have better luck with a uh, successor than uh, the, the the previous office holder. Final question. Um, you know, we we look at, uh, I think, lay people, people that aren't inside the Beltway, don't know a great deal about Washington. They step back and they look and they say, wait a minute. Uh, the Democrats at one point controlled both houses of Congress uh, and uh, certainly the Senate throughout Barack Obama's first uh, five years. Now the Republicans control it. How come the Democrats don't have the power to do what the Republicans did during the during his entire first term and into his second, how come the Democratic minority isn't seemingly as powerful as the Republican minority? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they can be um, the you know because the Republicans do not have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Uh, anything to pass the Senate is still going to require uh, sixty votes and. 
the Democrats, you know, changed the rules for some of the appointments uh, to go to just a bare majority in the last Congress, and, and uh, the Republicans are going to go back to a 60-vote filibuster uh, majority. So, so I do think that the minority can be strong in this case uh, for any legislation to pass the Senate. It's going to need 60 votes, and so things like the Keystone Pipeline and others uh, may not even receive a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And in addition to the Congress, uh, specifically the Senate, uh, being a check on the Republican control of Congress, um, there's also the power of the veto, which will exist this time. The mm-hmm. president used it sparingly in the first six years, but now has made several threats. And so if there's not a uh, two-thirds majority in both the House and Senate to pass legislation, such as on Keystone, on the rollback of health care, Dodd-Frank, and those kind of things, that um, it, you know, it's not going to not going to happen. And the first few years of the, the president, um, it was we we're in economic turmoil, and uh, there were, as you mentioned, they did have majorities, um, but it was, um, you know, tough to kind of get a certain legislation passed. And then as the majorities got smaller, uh, some of the Democratic members had to worry about re-election and primaries, and so um, kind of those votes were tougher. And um, But I do think the, uh, the Democrats in the Senate can be, uh, a very powerful obstacle for the passage of the Republican agenda, and if that fails for some reason, then the fallback of the uh, the presidential veto is is certainly very real. And the president has made it clear that he won't be afraid to to exercise uh, such authority. And it's very difficult then for the Congress to uh, come up with the votes to to do that. And so I think that ensures the the agenda and the legacy of a lot of the Obama administration for the first six years is is going to be pretty safe, even though. Uh, the Republican control of Congress exists now. Aaron Call, thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been a great conversation. Hope we can call on your expertise in the future, and best of luck down there on your recruiting trip in Atlanta. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Anytime. I'd love to talk to you. All right. You take care. Take care, you too. Bye-bye. Aaron Call, he is the director of the University of Michigan's debate team and debate institute. Now, you want to talk about the State of the Union? Or anything else that may be on your mind, you can call us at 888-874-4888, or you can text me at 917-830-3023, 917-830-3023, and it'll come up as an email, and I'll read it. If you send me something, 888-874-4888 is our number. Um, maybe, Jason, we'll do one more story and then we'll take a break, okay? Uh, Mayor de Blasio seems to be made of tougher stuff, perhaps, than some people might have thought. See, I, I, I really think that, uh, you know, that, that, that constant onslaught on the part of the police union might have, uh, you know, kind of made him change up a little bit. Maybe even think about doing an apology or maybe putting some serious distance between himself and the Reverend Al Sharpton. Neither of these things have happened. And I believe that's to his credit that neither of these things have happened. Uh, he's not apologizing. He said that publicly. No, nah, I'm not apologizing. What are you, crazy? And, you know, good on him for that. But he also went to Reverend Sharpton's National Action Network headquarters for a Martin Luther King Day rally on Monday. 
and uh, offered yet another defense of his attempt to reform how the NYPD interacts with people of color. Says Bill de Blasio, quote, what does every one of us want? The respect of those who serve us. But we owe them respect, too. He got a lot of applause for that. Uh, this whole thing with Al Sharpton, I always thought, was a bit of a shibboleth. That is a, a non-issue that a group of people got together to make into an issue. Now, there are people who say that the police unions made it an issue as a gambit in their ongoing quest to get a new contract. I don't know whether that's true or not. All I know is Al Sharpton doesn't run this city, no matter what the New York Post says. Al Sharpton doesn't run the police department, no matter what the New York Post says. They can wring their hands and talk all that gloom and doom mess. But Al Sharpton's relationship with the mayor is Al Sharpton's relationship with the mayor. And by the way, they don't agree on everything, you know. They really don't. They talk. They communicate. And by the way, Bill de Blasio is not the first person who's occupied Gracie Mansion, or in the case of Mike Bloomberg, not, but who occupied the office of the mayor here in New York, who sat down and spoke with Al Sharpton. Rudy Giuliani said no, but that was Rudy Giuliani. There are people who are old enough to vote now who don't remember Rudy Giuliani. So, a shibboleth. Just like foolishness, as far as I'm concerned. Now, speaking of Patty Lynch, the head of the PBA, he is facing opposition. Now, it was less than a month ago I was telling you that published reports said that Patty Lynch had no opposition in running for the presidency of the PBA, which I believe is going to be taken, his uh, election is taking place in June. Well, it's not quite that. Things have changed just a little. A group of people, Daily News calls them upstarts, insurgents, if you will, they plan to challenge Patrick Lynch and his entire leadership team. A guy named Brian Fusco, who's a PBA trustee, he represents cops in South Brooklyn, said yesterday he's running for president. And he's running as part of a slate. That slate calls itself Strengthen the Shield. Now, these officers are on the board, which means they're supposed to be Patty Lynch's boys. But they're unhappy with him. Fusco says, quote, he's not listening to the membership. He has an arrogance about him that it's his way or no way at all. You may remember, because I told you all about this, that there was a confrontation between Patty Lynch and some upstarts within his own union at Anton's in Queens during a delegates meeting. Got leaked out to the media. Now, all these things having been said, let me say this to y'all. Don't underestimate Pat Lynch. Don't do it. The people who run the law enforcement unions in this town have been there for a minute largely because they have delivered for their membership. Now, it's entirely possible that this insurgent group, Strengthen the Shield, 
will be able to make some inroads by saying, well, you know what? He forgot that that's what he was supposed to do, and he got into a spitting match with the mayor, and we don't benefit from it. They may be able to say all those things. Doesn't mean they can beat him in an open election. Now, I really feel that Pat Lynch is representative of a past way of thinking when it comes to the NYPD. I really do. I just think that, you know, he and his his executive board, which, by the way, is not exactly the most diverse group in the known universe, if you know what I mean, that they have a particular view of the city of New York and law enforcement's place in it. And I think that's changed. I think that position has changed. But the leadership of the PBA, up until now, has not. Now, that doesn't mean that these Strength in Our Shield guys are going to do kumbaya with Sharpton or some of the other protesters. That's not really the point. I have a feeling. Now, Ed Mullins, who I think uh, is head of sergeant, I know he is. He's head of sergeant's benevolent association. Ed Mullins has already seen the handwriting on the wall. Uh, Weak though his proposed initiatives are, he's come up with some proposed initiatives. Well, we want to do this. We want to strengthen community ties. We want to do more through the PAL. All good. You got to do better, but it's a start. Okay. Uh, At some juncture, if Pat Lynch is smart, he'll do likewise. Even with the -the over-the-top positions that he has taken. And I do mean over-the-top. We'll see how that works. Because I'll tell you the truth, as a journalist in this town, I want a ringside seat. A ringside seat for... Pat Lynch versus any, I don't care who the opposition is. It could be JoJo the dog-faced boy. If they're serious, it is a fight for the soul of law enforcement in this town. And people of color have a stake in how law enforcement is delivered to those who pay for it, I might add. Jason, I guess it's time to take a quick musical interlude, shall we? <clears throat> and when we come back, I'm going to talk about American Sniper. Hey, Jason, you seen American Sniper? No, me neither. But it's causing a lot of controversy, and I have a real, real different take on American Sniper. So stay with us. Thank you. 
18 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. We're here till 7. It's the Mark Riley Show. I am he. And uh, American Sniper. The, I guess, docudrama. I don't know if it's, I can't even really call it a docudrama. It's a feature film made by Clint Eastwood. It's about a guy named Chris Kyle, the late Chris Kyle, who was shot dead by a guy he was trying to help at a gun range. Chris Kyle said he killed 150 people while working as a sniper in Iraq. The deadliest sniper in American history. And the movie that sort of glorifies his life and work has become quite controversial. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of stuff that's controversial about Chris Kyle. You know, he kind of bragged a lot about himself. Uh, At one time, he said that he shot two armed Texas thugs who wanted to steal his truck, kill both of them. Said he traveled to New Orleans, killed 30 bad guys after Hurricane Katrina. And he falsely claimed he punched out former Marine uh, Minnesota Governor Jesse the Body Ventura uh, after, according to Kyle, Ventura disparaged the Navy SEALs. A lot of stuff was just not verifiable. But that doesn't mean anything when you're doing a feature film about the life of a guy like Chris Kyle. And in my humble judgment, this has kind of fallen along partisan lines. Conservatives love the film. Apparently, what did it do? $105 million in its first weekend? Uh, you know, hoorah. Yeah. Over the King Holiday weekend, $105 million. That's a lot of money for an opening weekend. Conservatives love it. Others, uh, what's this guy's name? Rogan and uh, Michael Moore and others disparage and condemn Chris Kyle and his por- his his laudable portrayal in this film. Now, I haven't seen the movie. I thought we might be able to get a review from Jason, but he hasn't seen it either. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't go to the movies that often, and if I did, actually my wife and I were thinking about going to the movies the other day when we were in the city, and and, and we couldn't find anything we really felt passionate enough about seeing. Uh, and, and suffice to say, American Sniper wasn't even on the radar, all right? But there was other stuff that, you know, what are we going to go see that for? Now, here's the thing that I think a lot of people are missing. This film, Jason, was directed by Clint Eastwood, okay? If you look at the one movie that is considered Clint Eastwood's masterpiece, there there are a couple. What was that boxing movie? The movie about the woman? Million Dollar Baby. That's considered a masterpiece, too. But his main, 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 main masterpiece, I hate to use the term game changer because it's so nonsensical, but it was a game changer, was Unforgiven. He won two Oscars, Best Director, Best Picture. And by the way, call me, will you? 888-874-4888-888-874-4888. Or 917-830-3023 if you want to leave me a text message. So if you look at Unforgiven, 
And in fact, if you look at the history of films that Clint Eastwood has made, going back to Dirty Harry, for God's sake, you see that there is a consistent thread. The reprehensible anti-hero. All right. Dirty Harry was one. William Money in Unforgiven. Jason, he shoots a guy in Unforgiven, and a guy says, you just shot an unarmed man. And Clint Eastwood's character says, well, he should have been armed. <laughs> That's how he was. He was a reprehensible killer. Yet he was the hero of the film. That's what Eastwood does. And in my humble judgment, that's how you got to look at American Sniper. I'm not going to look at it. But, I mean, uh, to me, that's its context. It's just Clint Eastwood is too daggone old to play Chris Kyle. If he was younger, I'm sure he'd try. The bottom line is this is what he does. You can condemn it from a liberal point of view or love it from a conservative point of view. It is what Clint Eastwood does. I went up on YouTube. And Jason, I, I, I want to try and snatch this, and snatch this and bring it in here and play it for people because I think they forgot. One of the last lines in Unforgiven, after he shoots a whole bunch of people, a couple in the back, I might add, William Money, and then he stands, he's on his horse and he's outside and Morgan Freeman's corpse is in a coffin in front of this bar. And he says, you all better bury do and i'm paraphrasing better do a good job of burying him and you better not trash any more whores and if you do i'm going to come back here and kill every one of you sons of bitches that's what he said <laughs> okay is that really all that different from chris kyle now i know some people may say ah oh, that was a work of fiction ah oh, this ah oh. that was considered eastwood's masterpiece why wouldn't he have chosen a film like American or, or chosen a story like Chris Kyle's to make American Sniper. Another guy like Dirty Harry, by the way, who went around shooting people for the greater good. And it's not perhaps out of the realm of possibility that the same people who like Dirty Harry like the portrayal of Chris Kyle. I don't know. I know to me, there's a straight line that's drawn, which is why it's very difficult for me, with the notable exception of Birth of a Nation and some of those other things, very difficult for me to kind of like look at film in a solely political context. All right. Because people didn't scream about the violence and the reprehensible nature of William Money in Unforgiven. Liberals didn't jump up and say, look at Eastwood, look at what he's doing, shooting up a place. And he's glorifying this kind of ultraviolence. But they, but people just didn't do it. Now, maybe they were dazzled by the cinematography. Maybe they thought, it, as I did, I thought it was a great movie. But I also saw it as part of the Clint Eastwood tradition. Now, every movie he makes is not like that. He did a, a movie about Charlie Parker called Bird. It wasn't about that. He does other movies. Million Dollar Baby was not about shooting people, was it? I think there was some other. What was that other one? Grand Torino? There's some other films that he made. They're not all shoot 'em ups But if you look at the high note in Clint Eastwood's career and look at American Sniper, 
I would submit to you, and again, I haven't seen American Sniper. I could be 100% wrong about this, but I think there's a continuum there. Whether you agree with the continuum or not is entirely up to you. But I, I, I hesitate to attack American Sniper on ideological grounds because I didn't attack Unforgiven on ideological grounds. And from what I've seen described in this film, there's an awful lot similar to between these two films. Let's just put it that way. So, and by the way, uh, there are people, I mean, Sarah Palin. See, this is, this is part of the problem I have, Jason. The controversy around American Sniper allows Sarah Palin to weigh in. And I use the word weigh in very, very loosely in this case. Why should anybody care what Sarah Palin thinks about the people who criticize American Sniper? You know, it's just like the killing of Eric Garner allowed Rudy Giuliani to weigh in for God knows how many times. How many times was he on Fox and Friends? It's like all of these different things open up and present a window of opportunity for people who should be enjoying their retirement to jump up and weigh in. And that, I guess, is what troubles me most about American Sniper. Now, uh, I, I think maybe, Jason, have I mentioned before that I read the Wonkette quite a bit? No? Well, I do. <laughs> all right. And the Wonkette has a piece that I just find, uh, first of all, they're hilarious. But there's a ring of truth to what they say that I hadn't thought about before. Do you all remember these, the, this, this uh, guy? Dalton Hayes, 18-year-old who was out on bond from a burglary charge, and a young girl named Cheyenne Phillips who was 13 years old. They ran away from their houses in Kentucky, stole a series of cars around the South before they got arrested two weeks later. Okay. Well, the Wonkette kind of goes in depth about these two and about, more importantly, how the media covered what they did. And Jason... This is absolutely startling. Startling, I say. Uh, Because, first of all, they mention... (laughs) This is the funny part. Uh, The headline to this story is, White Crime is the Right Crime. And they say, it's a simple enough story. Star-crossed lovers go on a multi-state crime spree. We're rooting for you, white kids. Here's the headline from the Associated Press as published in the Los Angeles Times. And it talks about Bonnie and Clyde. Police capture teen Bonnie and Clyde uh, suspected in blah, 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 blah. They say we did not cherry pick the headline Bonnie and Clyde. It was the dominant description used for Hayes and Phillips as evidenced by this snapshot from Google News. And anybody that kind of does any kind of journalism at all, you'll know what I'm talking about. You go on Google News, you input these two people, or you input Bonnie and Clyde, and this is what you get. L.A. Times, I just mentioned. Washington Post, after brazen crime spree, teen Bonnie and Clyde nabbed. New York Daily News, Bonnie and Clyde teen captured in Florida. Christian Science Monitor, what's next for Kentucky's teenage Bonnie and Clyde after capture? Fox News, in-depth. Bonnie and Clyde, crime couple spotted in Florida, report says. So 
it's interesting because the Juan Ket says the following. The impact of leading the story with this illusion is not subtle. Comparing the teens to Bonnie and Clyde, um, and, and, and by the way, they were talking about the people portrayed in the movie Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, archetypical, archetypal lovebird bandit so glamorously embodied by Warren freaking Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Alluding to raffish American archetypes, Bonnie and Clyde romanticizes and decriminalizes the subjects of the story, making their behavior seem, at worst, a childish imitation. The author nudged us out of the mundane world of bail jumpers and kidnapping into a sepia-toned world of American myth. And here's one of the leads. Two teenage sweethearts suspected of a crime spree uh, suspected in a crime spree, spree of stolen vehicles and pilfered checks across the South have been taken into custody in Florida, Kentucky authorities said. Now, let's look at this. Jason, let's look at this objectively. This is a guy who's 18 years old. He's out on bond, right? He is with a 13-year-old girl. In Kentucky, an 18-year-old having sex with a 13-year-old constitutes second-degree rape. I repeat, in Kentucky, an 18-year-old having sex with a 13-year-old constitutes second-degree rape. The writers choose none of these obvious descriptions of a relationship that we should intuitively see as predatory which, and which is legally non-consensual. They don't even use the value-neutral term pair, but instead rarify, uh, ratify, that is, the relationship with the most quaint, chaste, and cutesy noun they could possibly have used, sweethearts. Now, it's interesting, and uh, this is why I'm kind of like nailing on this story, all right? It's not, and this is according to the Juan Ket, not according to me. I wish I had said this. It's not possible that this story would have been covered in the same way if our two antiheroes were black. The story wouldn't have framed the relationship between, say, an 18-year-old black male and a 13-year-old black male as one of sweethearts, much less one between an 18-year-old black male and a 13-year-old white female. There's no chance the story would have gotten three paragraphs in without mentioning Dalton's criminal record or that he was fleeing prior burglary charges. The narrative of black criminality is the photo negative of those about white innocence. I'm just saying, <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm just bringing it to you. Uh, and congratulations, Juan Kett, for, uh, for running that down. Now, that could have been our To the Ridiculous story, but it's not. To the Ridiculous is about Fox News and uh, how they really need to better vet some of their so-called terror experts. Uh, the show Le Petit Journal is a French version of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Usually, that show reserves its venom for French politicians and local news media. But in the days after the terrorist attacks in Paris that left 17 dead, it set its sight on a transatlantic target, America's Fox News, after the channel claimed that swaths of England and France were ruled according to Sharia law. They did this on a weekend when all France and Paris was in a state of shock. Who hosted, Jan Barthez, who hosts the show. I cried, but he said it was also irritating, so we chose humor to campaign against Fox News. It's more effective than being 
upset. Now, on Saturday, this past Saturday, Fox News apologized not once but four times on the air for its reports about the no-go zones, acknowledging that there was no reason to believe that they existed. Then how the deuce did you have an expert on your television channel that said they did? Do you not vet? Do you not, like, find out who it is that you have on your channel? And by the way, this guy who said this, uh, Janine Pirro, who used to be, by the way, the Westchester County DA, hosts the show on Fox. She never even challenged the guy. She apologized for it. So, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But still, how do you do that? I'll tell you how you do that. You're not careful about trying to stick to a right-wing agenda. If it fits your agenda, you'll run it, even if it's crap. <laughs> I mean, that, to me, that's the only way you can explain this. And you can't explain it away. All right, so listen, it's time for me to go, all right? I don't want to. I'd stay. As a matter of fact, Jason, I'm not leaving. I'm going to hold my breath till my head explodes. How about that? No? <laughs> No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I really enjoy being here. I respect tremendously PRN and the faith they have in me. So thanks to Jason. Thanks to all of you who have been listening this evening. We'll be back next Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, to do it all over again for The Mark Riley Show. I am he. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.